0: The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: Hey, hey, it's uh, it's time to get going here. John Scholes and Stan Fanzelberg, we dragged him out of bed. He's ready to rock and or roll. It's about employment law. It's about workplace rights. And if you're not well steeped in the knowledge, this is the show you want to tune into. Always start off with the uh, the case of the day, thought of the day, pal. What's uh, what's going down with you?
2: Absolutely. Good morning, John. And good morning, Toronto. Well, John, I want to start off with a recent case I came across because, you know, our listeners often hear us talking about cause and the difficult standard, you know, that it is to meet. Uh, And and I think this case kind of shows a lot of the important components we're trying to analyze what is cause and whether somebody should be fired that on that basis. So in this particular case, it involved a plaintiff who was hired as a general manager in an auto dealership.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, He got hired uh, in 2020 been working for about a year before, there, and really no issues had been had come up until that point, when he submitted some expense claims that the owners had a little difficulty with and felt they weren't real expenses. And that actually triggered an investigation by the owners of this dealership to go back and look through some of the other expenses. And what they found, John, was that there were two particular expenses, one for a dinner and one for a breakfast, which they weren't a lot. It was a total of $250, but it ultimately determined that those were likely not business expenses uh, and because it was suspected that the plaintiff had actually gone to dinner and breakfast with his wife and not the people uh, he was working with because part of this company's uh, rules in terms of submitting expenses was you would write down the names of the other people you worked with that you were having lunch or dinner with. So he had written down some co-workers' names, and in in investigating that, they found that that was fraudulent. So they then obviously did what most reasonable employers would do, and they would ask the plaintiff what was going on. And this is really where he starts. You know, that was obviously bad, and no question. But it kind of mm-hmm. snowballs from there because not only did he refuse to admit that he did anything wrong, he lies about everything throughout this investigation, uh, and eventually they fire him for cause essentially saying you submitted fraudulent expenses and then you lied about it throughout the investigation. We no longer have this, the trust necessary to allow you to continue in this position. Uh, and this went all the way to trial and, and the court took a very interesting you know, contextual approach to viewing whether or not this was caused because objectively, you know, looking at it, you have a fairly senior general manager who had submitted a fraudulent expense for $250. Really, that's a that's a write-off for most companies. Not not much to really think about in terms of dollar amount. But nevertheless, John, the court still found that based on the whole of his conduct, it amounted to cause.
3: And, and a couple
2: of things led the court to find that. So number one, what I mentioned earlier, was he obviously intended to deceive the employer. And he knew that because... He right. didn't write down his wife's name on the expense and the receipts. He wrote down his co-worker's name. So he knew that he was doing something wrong and actively tried to conceal it. Uh, number two is the fact that this was a general manager at this auto dealership, a very senior position with a lot of authority and someone who the owners had to have a lot of trust uh, in to allow them, that person to continue in the, in the role. Uh, another factor was the fact that he'd only been there for a year. So you're not talking about a 20 year employee with, you know, years and years of good faith built up. No, he had just started. And obviously there was heightened scrutiny about what was this person's conduct and whether that person was fit for the role. And really the last factor, and really from my perspective, the crux of everything is the lying during the investigation. If he, ultimately, and I've seen this in so many cases, John, it's not the initial conduct that gets people in trouble, or certainly not the initial conduct that amounts to cause.
3: Mm -hmm. It's the
2: lying during the investigation, which pretty much cements the idea that you can't trust this person again, because you gave that person the opportunity to come clean. You know, it was very clear here that this person had submitted fraudulent expenses to everyone, despite that he couldn't Bring himself to admit it to the owners. And the court essentially found that all those factors combined was a clear breach of the trust placed in this general manager by the, by the company. And despite the small amount, despite the, the seniority of this individual, he was ultimately found to have been terminated for cause. Now, this is a, the one caveat here that's different is that this is a BC case. So, it, it does the courts, while the standard doesn't necessarily change the way courts view things from province to province do actually change. So what is cause in D.C. may not be cause in Ontario. Sure. And I know that sounds a little strange to some of our listeners, but ultimately, I mean, what cause is just what one person thinks it is, and that's the judge sitting on your trial at the day of your trial. That's all cause amounts to in, in the most basic sense. So there really is, you know, from judge to judge, from... From province to province, you will have differing opinions. Uh, this judge obviously felt that this raised the level of cause. You can certainly understand why the judge felt that way. Uh, I'm certain that there be other judges who might find it uh, found differently. But again, a really interesting case that really brings into perspective, you know, what is cause and how the courts approach it when analyzing it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, too. It just shows you that it's all the stuff behind the intent of the act and, and the lying about it not fessing up. It's nothing to do with the dollar amount, which is very little. So it's, uh, it's interesting for sure. Uh, Dan, thanks for standing by, pal. How are you?
4: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: Good, sir. What's on your mind?
4: I just have a question for you. I yep. work as a general, a general contractor, and we hired a company to do a heating, air conditioning on a new build and during the course of doing uh, the work uh, the heating company was brought out uh, prior to startup and they uh, displayed how they were going to be running their heat system and the client was not happy with it there was going to be way too many uh, big bulkheads and everything so uh, the heating company said well we can run a different system and you won't have any of these bulkheads And so my client asked for a quote, he came back with a quote, that was almost double the cost Mm. of the original quote, the original quote was for 18, the new quote was for 32. Anyhow, my client agreed to it, but said to him, just don't give me any extras. Are you sure you've got everything included in this quote? and the heating guy indicated that he had everything covered. Fast forward, he starts doing the work, getting all the mechanical done, and the building inspector comes out. I invited him out because I wanted him to check a few things, and he indicated that the heat ducts would need to be wrapped in order to pass inspection because they are exposed to certain uh, exterior elements. And the heating guy went, no, I'm not doing it. And the building inspector indicated to him, well, then you will not be able to pass your heating system. Fast forward again, the heating guy comes back with an extra $3,500 he wants to wrap these pipes. And my, the client said, in no certain terms is he going to pay that. That should have been covered under the quote. I then had the... the, the Heating company finish his work so that all the mechanical was roughed in. There was going to have to be things done after the finishing was done. And I made sure that he was paid in full for what work he had done. I even asked him through an email, is everything that you've done to date included in this payment that I'm giving you? It was. He said yes. I went then and hired another company, To finish the work based on the instructions from the client, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. A year late. A year later, this guy serves me with papers and wants to be paid for the full contract, even though he did not do the second phase of the work. Right? Uh, Is that even is that even possible?
2: Well. Well, I'll start with the caveat that this really isn't an employment question. This is a commercial litigation question, and it's even more particular because the construction industry actually has its own court system within our court system, uh, and that's a bit outside my purview. But you know, I will mention just generally that it is constr- you have a contractual dispute. Obviously, the first question is, well, who breached the contract? Because is going to say, you breached the contract. You didn't let me do the work. And you're going to say, you misquoted it, and then you you refused to do the work for the quote that you put forward. So, obviously, you breached the contract. I mean, that's really the crux of the the law of the matter, I think, is who who does a court think, act negligently and breached the contract? Can't he be paid for the work that wasn't done? Absolutely. If you guys have a binding contract and you refuse to allow him to complete the work, then he has damages that flow from that. And you you have to honor the contract, but you're obviously going to argue that he was the one who breached it. So you had no obligation to actually honor the contract at that
3: point.
1: Hmm. Dan, we're going to let you go, pal. Appreciate that. And uh, with that, we'll get to our emails after the break as well. Going to dive into a pile of those help at employmentlawyer.ca is how you reach out. We'll continue employment law show. Hang
0: on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: And welcome back to the Employment Law Show. You bet Stan Feinslberg is your guy. You want to reach out to Stan post-show easy. You can do that. Email help at employmentlawyer.ca. And phone number anytime, one eight five 855 stan has got a great team working with him as well. So you can reach out uh, during the week. Okay, let's dive into those emails, brother. Uh, Rajesh, first one, it says, guys, my employer is selling the business and tells me the buyer is going to hire me. However, it's been almost two months and I still have an urge from the buyer. Can I still go after my former employer? What do you think, Stan? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting
2: question, Rajesh. Uh, first kind of, way to determine what's going on here is to, cut, is to determine what kind of sale is going on here, because depending on the type of sale that we're talking about, the rights of the seller and the rights of the buyer and obligations to reject specifically will be different. And there's two, really only two types of ways to sell a business. You can either sell all the assets of the business, all the stuff, but without taking on you know the shares, the liabilities and all the, that stuff or you can buy the actual shares of a company, which just means, you know, you're buying the numbered company. It's like if the Walton sold Walmart and you worked at Walmart, it's not gonna really change your employment relationship with Walmart. So if it is the if we're talking about a share purchase, then really the seller doesn't owe you an obligation, but I suspect really what we're talking about here based on what the question is an asset purchase. Because with an asset purchase, What technically happens from a legal perspective is that the employment relationship ends. Because remember, you're not buying the company. You're just buying all of the company's stuff. And then if you want, you can choose to hire the company's employees as well. That's a a choice for the buyer. Now, oftentimes, the purchase and sale agreement with the seller will include a clause that specifies that the buyer has to hire on the employees of the And that's usually done so that the seller doesn't have any liability because, once again, once the sale happens, those employees are terminated and the seller owes them, you know, their entitlements, their severance, their notice, uh, their termination all things.
0: In this situation,
2: if this this buyer has never actually hired Rajesh here, then it's pretty clear that the seller is just trying to get away without paying him. Uh, Mm -hmm. He has absolute obligation to pay Rajesh whatever his entitlements are under the common law based on his age, position, length of employment, and ability to find new employment in the future. And frankly, this can be construed as bad faith because it seems pretty clear that he's trying to you know get away without paying him and is just leaving Rajesh in the dust that way. So absolutely you can go after the seller in this scenario, Rajesh, and I suggest you give us a call at the office during the week and speak to a lawyer about it.
1: Yeah, Rajesh, simple, and yeah, don't, make, uh, don't pull, the, pull the trigger on anything until you talk to Stan for sure, one David, thank you for waiting patiently. Good morning. How are you? Good
3: morning. I'm fine. How are you?
1: Excellent. What's on your mind?
3: Uh, I spoke to you fellows a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just to refresh, uh, my manager mentioned to me that my numbers aren't where they should be for sales, and it looked like I was quietly quitting. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Business is just not where where it's been over the last couple of years. Companies aren't spending. And they have told me they want to do a bi-monthly meeting to get me back to where I need to be with the expectation I'm going to still hit my annual quota, which honestly there's no way in hell that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Should should I be concerned about this or, or is this just normal?
2: Well, I mean, whether you should be concerned, I think, is based on how you feel about the relationship, because it's not unusual for companies to to basically coach employees. What you're talking about is like a performance improvement plan or coaching, where they say to an employee, hey, you're genuinely not meeting our standards, and so we want to provide you with the support you need so that you can get to an acceptable level. And that's the question that it really comes down to here, David do you think that they actually are genuinely trying to improve your sales or are they just trying to paper over, you know, some things so they can set you up for a termination? Because if we're talking about the latter, then you need to take steps to protect yourself. So, you know, the first step I would would take, number one, is you initially said to me, well, there's no way I'm going to eat my annual target. If if the reason for that is because the annual target is completely unreasonable, you need to make that known to the company and say, hey, this is not a reasonable metric. Just because you put a number and say, hit this number, doesn't make it reasonable, doesn't mean there's any reality behind it. So if you can show them, you know, and protest right away that, hey, well, this isn't going to happen because this is not a reasonable number, those are the kinds of pieces of evidence that court is going to be interested in hearing to determine whether or not they they have essentially cause and if they're trying to set you up for that, if they have cause to terminate you. Because keep in mind, David, that even if they go through this entire process, it's it's, first of all unlikely that they would terminate you for cause, meaning that they would just not pay you anything if they wanted to let you go. It's a very high standard to prove, especially in the context of performance, um, less so in the context of dishonesty, as we heard about earlier. But in the context of performance, it's very high standards approved. proof. Cause does not mean you are bad at your job. It means you did something so egregious they can never trust you to do that job again. Okay. Okay, so fair enough. The best things you can do, David, honestly, is just protest whatever you disagree with in terms of whatever they're saying. You know, if the sales numbers are unreasonable, tell them they're unreasonable. If, if they're saying things like, because you're five quitting, well, tell them that's not actually the case and explain why. Here's why the numbers are low. These accounts, we lost these accounts. Whatever the explanation is, maybe you just want to get that evidence out there in an email to them so that you can rely upon it down the road.
1: In writing, Absolutely. for sure. Yeah, in writing, never yeah, verbal. Yeah, in writing. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. It didn't Boom. happen in writing. You know, did it really happen?
3: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Sound good, David?
3: All right. Sounds good. Thanks very much.
1: You bet, pal. No worries, and If you need to uh, reach out further for a further conversation, uh, you can. Stan is uh, giving you some quick advice there, but always a lengthier conversation at hand. That is one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. And just like David, you can reach out to four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred. Okay, so, uh, Claire. Next one down the email list. Stan, let's get into it. it. Says, guys, my department is being outsourced to another company, and this new company wants me to stay on as a contractor. Is that legal? Well.
2: i I generally speaking, Claire, you know, without knowing all the facts, I would say it doesn't sound particularly legal to me. Um, If you're doing the same job on a Monday as a contractor that you were doing on a Friday as an employee, you know, there's a lot of reasons to question whether you're frankly a contractor in that scenario, especially if you're not working for anyone else, nothing other than, nothing in terms of compensation or job responsibilities has changed, nothing in terms of organizational structure or your management has changed, all of those, I mean, again, if the person is an employee on a Friday and they're doing everything the same on a Monday, it seems highly unlikely that just because of the wave of a, you know, of a piece of paper and some tax magic, you get missed to characterize someone differently.
1: And with that, we'll move on to another email. Uh, Claire, by the way, thank you for reaching out. You can always call that number as well. Jason's up, says, hey, Stan, is the general rule of thumb, here we go, two weeks of severance for every year I work there? Jason's new, but that's okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, it must be neat to the show because this is something we've definitely <laughs> covered here before, but love to obviously you know, get that information out there as often as possible because, Jason, two weeks is for a year is certainly on the lower end of what's reasonable Um, It's more akin, actually, to what you might consider your minimum entitlements, because in certain scenarios, two weeks per year is actually the least amount of money they can pay you. Uh, Really, unless you have a contract that binds you to the minimums, then based on the common law and the factors that we talk about, usually something closer to a month per year is a more reasonable way to look at it. And that goes up or down depending on length of service, depending on seniority, depending on age. You know, there's an inverse relationship between length of service, frankly, and, and common law entitlements. A short service employee can get two, three months per year. Uh, a long service employee, maybe, who's been there for, let's say, 30 years, maybe two or three weeks per year is more reasonable in that scenario. It's all contextual, but as a general rule of thumb, two, months is, uh, two weeks per year is probably a little too low.
1: And as always, uh, Jason, and we tell everybody if uh, he wants some quick, uh, quick numbers, at least a, uh, at your fingertips, simply grab your smartphone, your tablet, go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, pocket employment Lawyer CA and among other uh, handy tools, uh, there you'll find the severance calculator does exactly that. It will calculate your severance in about 30 seconds. You just put in some basic uh, numbers for input, and uh, there you go. Spit out a number at the bottom, and from there you can continue on the conversation with Stan if you want to get more uh, more details. But pocket employment lawyer. CA is how you uh, tackle that sucker. It's going to be Albert up next. Albert says, Guys, love the show. Can an employer terminate you while you're on a disability leave? Whoa. Whoa.
2: Yeah, very. it's obviously a broad minefield, but it's not impossible, John, because there's a distinction between terminating someone who happens to be on a disability leave and terminating someone because of that disability leave. You know, if, if a person's on a disability leave and the company reorganizes their, an entire division and 100 people get let go, well, it, it's very likely that in that scenario, that person is allowed to be terminated.
4: It's, they're not being
2: terminated in any way in relation to the disability leave, they just happen to work in an department that's been eliminated. Uh, whereas the adverse of that, the contrast of that would be if that person's on a disability leave, and let's say they have a person on contract filling in their position, they decide, well, we actually like this contract person more, so we're not going to bring that other person back. Well, that's very clearly a person losing their job because of a disability, and that's discriminatory. And the thing to keep in mind, John, is that the the decision itself, it doesn't have to be 100% based on discrimination, or even 50% based on discrimination. Really, if discrimination plays any part in that decision, 1% of that decision, then that makes the whole decision, the entire intent, discriminatory in nature.
1: Yeah, it makes, uh, makes total sense, right? But, I mean, I guess it's it's one of those things where you generally, as, a, as an employer, you're going to want to tread lightly when it comes to somebody on, I'm not even talking maternity or parental leave here, but disability leave especially. And doesn't it always go back to your medical team as well? Well,
2: absolutely, because even in the, the initial scenario that we talked about, I mean, they still obligations to consider whether or not that person can be accommodated in a new right. position. Um, and, yeah, the med- Medicals in terms of accommodation become the most dominant factor because at the end of the day, only your doctor, who is the person who actually sees you and assesses you, can determine whether, you know, what your medical diagnosis is and what accommodations you need.
1: And just as a bit of a sidebar, you know, if you've gone through this and it, it turns out that not only your employer but your, uh, your, your long-term disability insurer is giving you some static about this as well, you can always reach out to Stan. He's got his colleagues on the other side of the office that cover all the disability matters too. So it's a one-two punch if you need that. Again, you can reach out to one 821 5900 Okay, I'm going to get you put on your uh, – do some quick math here, Stan, in your head because I know you can do it. Robert says, guys, I was terminated after 12 years of service. Technical role. I'm in my 40s. They offer me 25 weeks of severance. Is that ballpark? Is that fair?
2: Uh, you put me on the spot with math. That's why I'm a lawyer. We're with, we're
1: <laughs> I wasn't going to do it.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, Bob's question is actually not that different than Jason's earlier question because, yeah. if you do the math here, you know we have a 12 year guy who's getting 25 weeks. Well, so that's about two weeks per year, uh, similar to what Jason thought might be the rule of thumb. And I'll say to Bob, what I said to Jason earlier, you know, unless you've got a contract that limits you, that's likely going to be pretty short of what you're entitled to, you know, more than likely, based on what Bob mentioned, a month per year, maybe something in the 10 to 12 month range is is what his entitlements would look like in court. So that doesn't sound fair to me, Bob, and I think you should give us a call and we can discuss it uh, during office hours.
1: Same route for you, Bob. Reach out to uh, Stan as we get into a break here. Uh, Any other time during the week, 1-855-821-5900. And again, go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Get a better idea of what that severance should be. Slip into a short break. Back into more of your emails. That is help at employmentlawyer.ca. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. But we continue the Employment Law Show. Stand by. You're listening
0: to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Stan
1: Fainsilberg, courtesy Samfiru Tamarkin LLP, is uh, handling all the uh, that doing all the heavy lifting on the show this morning. So you can reach out to Stan by the way after the show anytime. Ready to uh, take your calls, have that uh, non-committal chat anytime, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine. 855 help at employmentlawyer.ca. And for any other online matters, uh, or simply uh, use your cell phone, your tablet, desktop, go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Let's roll down to our next email. Stand from Robert to Bob, different guy, says, uh, my employer gave me a month of working notice. I have an interview in Halliburton as she, uh, and she denied my request for time off for that interview. Is that allowed?
3: Well, really,
2: Bob, uh, John, what I tell Bob is that that what the employer is doing is essentially undermining the entire purpose of the working notice that she's giving him. You know, the purpose of notice, as a general concept, is to give a person a time and a financial safety net with that time until they're able to find their next job. Mm-hmm. So if you're actively taking steps to stymie someone's ability to find a job because you're refusing to let them go for this interview, well, it's undermining the exact purpose that you gave of the working notice you gave them. In that scenario, what I would say is, first of all, you know, I don't think that that count would count as working notice at that point based based on the fact that, again, it's undermining its, its purpose. Uh, and secondly... That employer is arguably creating a toxic work environment to such a degree that Bob doesn't even have to stay there until the end for the whatever period
1: of working notice he was given by the employer. Imagine. Should not should uh, should uh, soon to be the former employer not encourage maybe even help out that other that soon to be gone employee get out the door if they're giving them working notice. I mean that's the whole point, right? They're trying to get rid of get rid of them, and not such a nice term, but that's basically what they're doing, no.
2: Well, absolutely, it's not only, you know, it's not only in the interest of the employee here, John, it's in fact in the interest of the employer as well that Bob go and get another job, because as soon as Bob gets that job, to the extent that the employer may owe him anything beyond the working notice, well, now he's got a new job and he's starting to mitigate his damages. Uh, So, really, the employer is acting against their own self-interest, frankly, uh, by not letting Bob go for that interview.
1: (laughs) All right, uh, emails again anytime, help at employmentlawyer.ca, but we're trying to get through as many as we can on the show this morning. James, I'm next, says, I've been off uh, off for a week with a cold. You're talking my language, James. Uh, I told my employer yesterday that I feel good enough to return next week, and they told me that I would have to get a COVID test, showing I was negative or they could not let me come back to work. Do I still have to go for that COVID test?
2: Uh, this must be an old email because I feel like this is the scenario that's well past its uh, expiry date. I, I, I don't know too many employers and I, I don't think too many employees who are still engaged in the testing process. I, I, I don't really see how an employer can impose that condition considering what the today's regulations and the government's approach to COVID. Uh, I don't think that's... Frank, and, you know, outside of some specific context with like maybe a long-term care home... Um, I just don't see how it's, it makes sense or it's feasible at
1: this point. To your point, you know, it, it's funny you mention that, Stan, because I go see my father-in-law, you know, once a week at long-term care. They stopped testing about three weeks ago, so they're not even doing it anymore. So, I think, uh, I think James, uh, James employers, uh, a little too far back in history for sure. Alexis, Hello. you're up next, pal. Says, hey guys, the Ontario government website says I have to wait five years before I'm eligible for severance. Is that true?
2: So this is, you know, a lot of people that we speak to often tell us, well, the Ministry of Labor told me that I'm only entitled to this. Uh, And and there's a very important distinction that people need to understand between what their rights are under the Employment Standards Act and what the Ministry will tell them and what their real entitlements and rights are under the common law. And and severance is one of those things that confuses so many people because it, it means something very specific when we're talking about a person's Employment Standards Act entitlements, and, and something very vague and ambiguous in every other scenario. Uh, so if you were to call the Ministry of Labor and ask them, "Am my entitled to severance, what they tell you is that, well, you have to have been working for a company for five years, and that company has to have a payroll of at least $2.5 million. If those two criteria are met, then and only then would that employee be entitled to one week per year of severance. Right. Now that is somebody's minimum entitlements. Again, the, the statute, the employment Standard, standards act sets out an employee's floor. That's not the ceiling. And this is where so much confusion happens because is, is, is we often use, you know, the word severance to mean how much money someone's going to get, not in the mm-hmm. very specific way that I just described. Uh, and, under the common law, where what we often call as severance, are just a person's common law entitlements, potentially far greater than you know a couple of weeks per year, or a week per year for the ESA. So, no, you know, whatever the ministry has told you, it's not wrong, it's only, it's just not entirely accurate. And this is why it's so important that don't just go and call the ministry and ask them what your rights are. You, you know, call us That's why we do these free consultations. Hey, if you don't have a case, you know, I'm the first one to tell you because I'm not trying to waste your time or, frankly, our time. But that's why we do these free consultations to make sure that you have all the information that you need to make these, you know, life-altering decisions at a time that's probably one of the hardest moments in a person's life.
1: Let me ask you this, Dan, because people, you know, sometimes they wonder this and they call in and ask, you know, you talk about, you know, the Ministry of Labor or uh, the Labor Code, and then you say the common law. So break down what that means, common law, in the employment law's context. What does it mean exactly?
2: Well, common law, you know, it it means actually exactly what it sounds like. It's just all the common law. So literally just all of the law that's been made through centuries, built on top of each other by various judges. That's what common law means. It's not something that's written down. It's just the system of law that we think of as precedential. You know, and, and, it, and we're not even talking just about Canadian law. I mean, common law dates back hundreds and hundreds of years, and we take a lot of our fundamental foundational principles from the U.K. and their common law, and in fact, import them into our legal system, into our employment. Law, so that's what we mean when we're talking about the common law. It's just that system of precedent built up over years, uh, where you know now we have some certainty because there's enough decisions that draw a conclusion as to what any an answer is to any particular issue.
1: Awesome. Love the description. We're going to get into one more short break, pal. Get into more of your emails as well. This will be your chance as well. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. Lots more. The Employment Law Show is just ahead. Stand by.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Uh, right right back at
1: it and uh, welcome to the show and thanks for
0: hanging in there here this morning it'll be uh it'll be al hey al good
1: morning how are you good morning how are you guys doing good brother what's uh what's on your mind today
3: okay i'll give you guys a back end story and i just need a little bit of advice so i am a robotics engineer working for a um, an manufacturing facility down here in the city well in, in the woodbridge area and um uh Back end story, uh, we are implementing some AI and robotic stuff, and the supplier that we are working with, we've been with them. This stuff takes 12 months, 18 months to implement, and uh, I was uh, I was offered uh, a job with the supplier and uh, a significantly better package, all that stuff. But uh, the company I'm with, I've uh, been with them for nine years, you know, they've been really good, uh, very supportive, so. I spoke to my general manager, who I also have a, a sort of a friendly relationship outside of work too. And, um, you know, I, I, I talked to him about it and his response to me was that, you know, with the company I'm it, with right now, it's about as far as I'm ever going to get. And if this offer is good, the, com- the supplier company is really good, AI robotics, we all know is, is, is where it's going now. Um, you should take it. You should definitely take it. But he asks that um, just stay on until this last implementation uh, is beyond the test part, and which I agreed. And 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 we we talked back and forth with the other company, and everything was myself and the other company, and uh, and everything went on. And uh, I put in my resignation with almost eight weeks of notice for them um... just so that we can be there and the other company also indicated that um, if the implementation wasn't done because stuff happens along the way uh... then i would be still there as their employee making sure that uh... everything is uh... everything is taken care of so now i'm at week two weeks left uh... with my old company now uh, as of as of monday and um uh, I got a sort of a conversation with the new company I'm going to go with. That uh, the vi- the VP of my current company indicated that they poached me. Uh, they're not very happy about it. And uh, if uh, if they take me on, it would be a significant issue for them using their services from now on. And uh, for that company, I mean, I I know how much work these people do with them uh that i I know they 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 would have to back off this thing so um it was a conversation it was nothing in writing it was nothing anything like that but it was a friday afternoon kind of uh hey you got a minute i got to talk to you about this and uh we are still talking about it but you cannot you understand where this is going to go and i was so dumbstruck that uh, my response was uh uh okay and I, i walked away so anyways uh my general manager, who I, again, friends with, uh, spoke to him this morning, and uh, just before I, I made this phone call, and I said, uh, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z, this is what was done. Do you know anything about it? And he said, look, I'm sorry you found out about this, because we were going to bring you in next week and talk to you about it, but yes, such a conversation has happened. Um, you know, um, it, it just doesn't look good that you are poached right on our premises, and, uh, and this and this and this, and uh, and to give you guys an idea, it's about a 40% bump in pay um, and significantly more parks and stuff. I mean, uh, semantics, but, but hear me out. And um, so uh, I said, then what happens now? Like, are you guys, you guys are stopping me going to another company, threatening the other company I'm sure as a business, they are not gonna take me on as a risk to lose out on whatever amount of money you guys make, they make from you guys. Um, So are you guys gonna match? What are you guys gonna do? So he said, no, he says, uh, conversations have been taking place to say that we can rescind your resignation, but you will have to start off as a brand new employee. (laughs) And and, and that 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 conversation happened 20 minutes ago. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So, But I want to start with the,
2: the last thing you said because that was very comical to me. Like, you've literally never left this employer. If they rescind that resignation, you're not a new employee and they can call you a new employee as much as they want to. It's absolutely ridiculous. But beyond that, there's both liability here for the, the new employer you were going to go to but also your current employer because, first of all, you know, the company can't just rescind an offer. You've obviously already taken steps, you know, to to implement that offer. You resign from your job. You've already, you know, you're essentially already too deep. And rescinding an offer causes you real damage. So, first of all, if they rescind the offer, number one, that's, that's a wrongful dismissal. Even though you haven't started there, you know, that's a wrongful dismissal or a breach of contract. One of the two, but either way, you're owed something. Secondly, there's a negligent misrepresentation going on. But in terms of your current employer, they have liability too because if they go to your other employer and say, don't hire this guy or we're going to make life difficult for you, well, there's two potential torts that they're liable for. Number one is inducing breach of contract. You know, they effectively went to this new company and said, don't hire you. That's inducing and they essentially forced that new company to breach its contract with you to not hire you. And secondly, there's also another tolerance called intentional interference with economic relations that I think could apply. Here. So, as I say, a lot going on here. And you know, one aspect that we got into, but whether or not you were induced by the new company to leave your old employer, and whether those years should count when determining your severance from the new company, because again, they're breaching that contract. We have to figure out, well, what are the damages of the breach? Inducement can significantly increase those damages. So, a lot going on, and I definitely
3: think you should give us a call during the week to talk, discuss this in more detail with a lawyer. Right. So, so all conversations that have happened right now is quote unquote off the record because when I spoke to the VP of the new company that I was with on Friday afternoon, he was like, "Hey, going to come here? I need to talk to you about something. Just want to let you know this conversation is happening." but we don't know how we're going to handle it. And the conversation I had this morning with my general manager was, again, off the record outside that, yes, I'm sorry that you found out about this, but conversations are happening. And and so do I wait to hear, like, here's my question, and the reason I picked up the phone to call you guys was do I wait to get something concrete or should I start reacting right now? Well, the starting point
2: for any kind of conversations is, Deciding what do you want to have? Do you do you want to
3: stay? Do you want
4: to go? You know. You know you don't that, want... that, that, that.
3: Sorry, not to interrupt you, but that that is another point. It my field, though growing and and and, 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 and you know the, it, it's it's what's happening. It is a very tight knit community, and and you start burning bridges. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not like they can go out and again not saying anything, but it's not like you can go out and get a. Robotic AI implementer engineer out there from the street, right? So there's, there's maybe in, in the in the 500 kilometer of, of 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 the greater Toronto, there is maybe 12 of us. Well,
2: well, what that sounds like to me is like you have significant amount of leverage to, to get, extract whatever you want to extract out of this situation, because obviously this new co- your old company doesn't want to lose. You. Well, you know, they're not really they're not really acting like a company that doesn't want to lose you because they seem to be approaching this, and frankly, the worst way possible. But if you're the one who has the leverage, if you know that you can go out and get a job somewhere else, well, use that leverage. Tell them you're unhappy. Tell them that this was ridiculous, that, you know, the GM told you that this was allowed. Also, by the way, this whole, like, off the record, just so our listeners understand, that's not a real thing. There's no such thing as an off-the-record conversation outside of the legal context. There are, there's privileged conversations, yes, yeah, You know, and there are certain types of privilege conversations, but you having a conversation that's directly about the issue, you know, that any future litigation is going to be about with your manager, that's never off the record. That's evidence that we will use if we need to. And with that, we are done. Thank you, brother. Good stuff.
1: Thank you uh, for that final phone call. We're out of here until uh, later on the weekend. In the meantime, reach out to Stan now, one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca, and the website pocketemploymentlawyer.ca as well. We'll catch you next time in the Employment Law Show.
0: The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.